Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, nearly 150 million Americans are heading out for this long Labor Day weekend. We just really looked at flights and today worked out better for our schedule and really cost. Questions swirling in Maui about the response to those deadly wildfires. Yeah, I can't speak to what or whose responsibility it was to communicate. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, a racial justice nonprofit on whether there's been progress in the 60 years since the 1963 March on Washington. Many black people in particular are shell-shocked by the degree of open uh, hostility towards us. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. It's one of the busiest travel weekends of the year, and one survey says more than half of the adults in the nation are heading out for Labor Day. CBS's Chris Van Cleve. Blake Sosa and his wife Ashley are heading to Japan for their honeymoon, getting an early start on Labor Day weekend at Chicago's O'Hare Airport as the busiest summer travel season on record comes to a close. We just really looked at flights, and today worked out better for our schedule and really cost, and it definitely helps to beat the Labor Day rush. The TSA has screened more than 227 million passengers since Memorial Day weekend, surpassing pre-pandemic records, and the agency expects to see another 14 million more by Tuesday. It could just be a holdover from a lot of folks not traveling over the past few years due to COVID, and they've got that international travel bug, and they've decided, I'm going to do it this year. Because being up 44%, that's pretty noticeable. The nearly 150 million people traveling over Labor Day will face gas prices averaging about 3.82 a gallon. While it's nearly the same as last year, AAA says it's higher than normal for the holiday. Baba Javier is driving from Los Angeles to Arizona. I'm not going to let the gas prices affect what we do right now. It does hurt, not going to lie. Despite a series of storms wreaking havoc around July 4th, summer 2023 saw a 21% drop in cancellations, even with an increase in flights. Still, one in four left late this summer, up from last year. Labor Day weekend, are you concerned about where things stand? Well, we're, we're always concerned because we know we're just one unexpected event, glitch or storm away from there being some real issues. But Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says improving staffing and airlines cutting some summer flights created a buffer against disruptions. This summer was a test of the recovery of our aviation system, and the results have been remarkable. Expect the airports to also be very busy on Monday on the roads. When it comes time to come back home, look, Sunday evening during the day will be pretty busy. Chris Van Cleve, CBS News. 
Los Angeles. COVID cases are up in some places and parents are wondering what to do about vaccines as school starts. We asked Dr. Ruth Cantula, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at MedStar Health about that and whether it's time to wear masks again. Uh, so in terms of um, vaccinations, it's the flu vaccine and making sure that they're up to date on their COVID vaccines. And so this season for flu and COVID, uh, there will be uh, new vaccines that will be released um, in this month in September is usually when the new vaccines come out. Um, and then with regards to RSV, for the younger infants, um, it's not a vaccine in the traditional way that you think about a vaccine. It's actually monoclonal antibodies that will be available for infants um, where this is their first um, RSV season. And then for older infants up until 24 months of age, if they have severe illness, that would put them at risk for RSV. Um, and then to get to your question about masks again, um, it's something to consider. Uh, so masking in class where it's a crowded setting or max masking at least when you're out grocery shopping, basically going back to the things that we were doing before. Um, masking when you're in a, a crowded setting is, is really where I would encourage people to consider masking. And then we actually have all the tools that we need to prevent infections, right? We all know how important it is to to wash our hands and stay home when we're sick. Um, so I think I think we're I think we have all the tools in the arsenal to prepare us for this season. How going back to those antibodies, how do you how and where do you get those? So with regards to the antibodies, if you are for infants, um, they may receive them when they're born in the hospital um, if they're uh, distributed at that point, um, and then also um, in their pediatrician's office. Um, so not really sure when they're going to be out, uh, but they've been approved. And um, on our end, we've just been getting ready um, for their distribution. How are hospitalizations among children and babies? I know that they're up for adults. What about for young people? So in my in my clinical care setting, have not seen a lot of hospitalization. And the caveat being is I see a lot of immunocompromised kids. So haven't seen an uptick in hospitalizations or an uptick in hospitalizations for infants just yet. Um, but we're expecting it, um, especially since um, September, as you mentioned, is when kids are going to school if they're not in school already and are in crowded, um, not crowded classrooms, but are in classrooms with other kids. So as pediatricians, we're always ready for September as a, a month when there's going to be a lot of illnesses. And really briefly, I read somewhere that a new symptom that kids with COVID are coming up with is a rash or hives along with a sore throat. Have you run into, across that? Um, have not run into it quite yet, but yes. So that is one of the um, symptoms that we are concerned about with uh, COVID. Um, it's also a symptom that you can get with other viral infections. So you can also get um, hives with flu, for example. And then believe it or not, strep, which is a bacterial infection, can also prevent, um, present with hives. Um, and I forgot to mention that strep is one of the infections that we're also um, uh, being mindful of and being prepared for in the fall. That's Dr. Ruth Cantula at MedStar Health. The cleanup is underway from Adalia's destruction. President Biden heading to Florida after signing a major disaster declaration. Just thank God nobody died. Third generation shrimp farmer Buddy Ellison held back tears in Florida as he surveyed the ruins of his family's business in Horseshoe Beach. The actual stuff that was in that in there, money it won't be rebuilt. 
it can't, it can't rebuild it. Floridians along the Gulf Coast are picking up the pieces after Idalia unleashed record storm surge, causing intense flooding. Some of the residents have lost their homes, people have lost their businesses, their livelihood. We need a little bit of help. Idalia also tore through three other states. Crews in Georgia cleared snapped tree limbs from roadways. I think we got off really easy. In South Carolina, video shows the moment a tornado flipped a car. The driver, an expecting mother, escaped without a scratch. I definitely feel lucky. In southern North Carolina, cars sit submerged in massive flooding Idalia left behind. The financial toll of Idalia's destruction up the southeast is expected to be upwards of $20 billion. To the people of Florida and throughout the southeast, uh, I'm here to make clear that our nation has your back. National Guard and search and rescue teams are clearing debris and handing out supplies. Jared Hill, CBS News, Moorhead City, North Carolina. Coming up, calls for resignations in Maui. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. In Maui Friday, Native Hawaiian faith leaders from diverse backgrounds held a day-long vigil for those lost in the Lahaina wildfires. This as there have been calls for the resignation of Maui's mayor and others amid finger-pointing over the series of communication breakdowns during the fires. CBS's Jonathan Vigliotti has been covering the disaster since it happened. Still many questions, not enough answers. The calls for resignation come after nearly two-minute exchange I had with top leaders both here in the state and on the island, and they would not explain where they were and what they were doing at the time of this deadly fire. As the flames barrel down on Lahaina, oh, man, that house is burning. and social media showed dozens clinging to life in the ocean to escape the inferno, CBS News has learned Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson did not call on the state for backup, either during or in the hours after the firestorm. Social media showed the fire, showed people running for their lives, and yet well, your time your office media, was not so in communication. Speak, first of all, I'm not going to speak to social media. I wasn't on social media. We didn't have time for that. Bisson did not explain what he was doing at this time. You are the highest ranking official here on the island. If the buck stops with your office, how is that possible? Yeah, I can't speak to what or whose responsibility it was to communicate directly. But you're the boss of this island, so yes, you can speak to it. I'm saying I can't say who was responsible for communicating with General Hara. Major General Kenneth Hara, director of the state's emergency response, said in an earlier interview he was initially unaware of the scale of the crisis. And I thought everyone had gotten out safely, and it wasn't until probably the next day that I started hearing about some fatalities. So my question is for now, well, General Hara. I would, I would like some clarification. We pressed Hara on this point. But because of the winds, we couldn't start our helicopters and we couldn't launch them in commitment. We're ready. We're ready to go. So, so the narrative you're pushing is not totally accurate. Don't you think, it's not a narrative, don't you think it was important for your agency to know about the deaths? Um, I don't think I could have done anything about that. Hara and his local subordinate, Herman Andaya, were both at an emergency response conference hosted by FEMA off the island at the time of the fire. I do not. Andaya resigned after telling CBS News he didn't regret his decision to not sound emergency sirens. Hara did not clarify what his state and local teams were doing during and after the fire. We've been looking at the timeline. What I'm trying to say is that, that fire was so rapid. And by the time everyone had situational awareness, 
it, it was too late, unfortunately. Federal school loan borrowers will be required to pay their monthly loan payments starting next month for the first time since 2020 after a pandemic pause. CBS's Weijia Jiang reports the White House is trying to help. In Indianapolis, Erin Heffern and her husband are dreading the return of student loan bills. We lose sleep over it. It's like it's just it takes so much out of us. Together, they owe $116,000, which breaks down to payments of $1,500 a month. During the pandemic, they got some relief. It's really hard to even have a strategy because it's such a large portion of what we make. For 39-year-old Heffern, the financial strain amounts to more than struggling to pay bills. It has impacted her goal to start a family. Not having children has probably been the biggest, biggest choice that we've made because of our student loan. We can't live paycheck to paycheck and bring children into into this world. The couple is among 45 million Americans who have student loan debt, totaling $1.7 trillion. The Biden administration tried to deliver up to $20,000 of relief to millions of borrowers. But in June, the Supreme Court blocked the program with a 6-3 decision. President Biden has vowed to keep fighting, feeling pressure from progressives in his party. Under my new plan, reducing that payment to just 5%, of your disposable income. Under the president's SAVE plan, which will be fully implemented by next summer, interest will not accumulate as long as borrowers make their monthly payments. Those will be based on income and family size. More than one million low-income borrowers will qualify for a $0 monthly payment. It's a game changer for a lot of people who are um, in student loan debt. Michelle Singletary is a personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. People look at how much they owe. They get discouraged and they just get paralyzed. If you are not sure you have enough money, call your loan servicer. Figure out the right payment plan for you and take action. I'm telling you, this debt will haunt you for decades. So call and see what is possible. Where's this way, bud? Heffern was holding out hope for loan forgiveness. Now she's grappling with reality. I just, I, I don't think, I don't, yeah, I don't think that we'll ever get any relief from it. Well, I think we'll take these loans to our graves, unfortunately. There's also a so-called on-ramp program to help people avoid the worst consequences if they miss their loans. They won't be reported to credit bureaus and they won't be considered in default. However, interest will add up. Weijia Jiang, CBS News, the White House. A federal judge handed down one of the longest sentences yet Thursday for a Capitol riot defendant. A former organizer of the far-right extremist group The Proud Boys was sentenced to 17 years in prison after being convicted of seditious conspiracy. Prosecutors said Joseph Biggs and his co-conspirators were the driving force behind the violence that unfolded at the Capitol. Biggs boasted about storming the building. January 6th will be a day in infamy. But he wept in court, handed a 17-year sentence in prison after being convicted alongside Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio of engaging in seditious conspiracy to keep then-President Donald Trump in office. Biggs said, I'm not a terrorist, but I know I have to be punished. Judge Timothy Kelly said Biggs was part of a mob that brought an entire branch of government to heel. Also sentenced, Zachary Real, president of the Philadelphia chapter of the Proud Boys, He was sentenced to 15 years, less than the 30 prosecutors wanted. They say Real spent weeks organizing the Capitol attacks.
In a separate trial, January 6th defendant Brandon Fellows was convicted on five counts, but jurors in the case revealed they're concerned about their personal safety. Writing to Judge Trevor McFadden to confirm Fellows doesn't have any of their personal information that's usually shared with attorneys on both sides. Fellows is representing himself in court. McFadden would only say that jurors' personal information is destroyed at the end of a case. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty in the Georgia election interference case and waived his right to appear at the arraignment next Wednesday in Atlanta. It likely would have aired live on television. Former President Trump also asked the Georgia judge to split his case from the 18 other co-defendants, some of whom are pushing for trials to start as soon as October. Trump's attorney said a fall court date doesn't give them time to prepare, violating the former president's right to a fair trial. Ed O'Keefe, CBS News, Washington. Another member of the Proud Boys, after being sentenced to 10 years in prison for his role in the Capitol riot, yelled Trump won as he left a Washington courtroom on Friday. Coming up, a deadly fire in South Africa. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. At least 74 people are dead, including children, after a fire in South Africa at a derelict building where hundreds lived. Some people leaped from windows in a five-story building owned by the city of Johannesburg, where residents were paying rent to criminals. Such places are home to South Africans and migrants caught in a shortage of housing and jobs. The worst imaginable noise to wake up to. People screaming, fire, 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 in a building housing hundreds of people. Residents trapped inside by a locked gate, unable to escape. Their bodies now piled up. At least 12 children among the dead. I was watch out in the window, the whole building was fired. So I decided myself to jump first. I jumped down, my wife saw for me a baby, I catch him. Relief and shock etched on the faces of those who managed to escape. But now that the flames have been extinguished, the realization that not everyone is coming out has set in. The flames were so intense that people inside have been said to be burnt beyond recognition. Many who lived inside this building were migrants from across the continent. The residents here were living in overcrowded conditions without consistent electricity or water. Authorities say it resembled an informal settlement with shack-like partitions of cardboard boxes and sheets that likely fed the fire. I've got about 23 years in the service. I've never come across something like this in my whole life. A visit by the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, as the search and rescue becomes a search and recovery operation. He said such a tragedy must never happen again. Shinganyoka, BBC News, Johannesburg. 
Now to Ukraine, where troops are using U.S.-supplied cluster munitions as they battle Russia's invasion. CBS's Deborah Pata went to the front lines to see how they are trying to fend off Russian attacks, even though they're outgunned. We're heading to a secret hideout deep in this forest near Liman, caught in the crosshairs of a new line of Russian attack. We're bunkered down with Ukrainian troops not far from the eastern front line where Russia is putting them under intense pressure in a bid to stretch their resources. Moscow wants to force Ukraine to bolster its defense here by siphoning off soldiers from its counteroffensive in the south. A couple of weeks of very huge combat here using tanks, aviation, rocket system, drones. U.S.-trained commander Simon Solotenko and his elite forces of the Bogan Brigade have been up all night, fending off another Russian assault. Outmanned and outgunned, Russia has almost 10 times their ammunition. They are outnumber us with drones, and it's a huge problem, but we're fighting. We have no choice. And morale, hi. We're holding our line. It is difficult. I can't say that our morale is uh, on the top, but we're holding our line and we are standing. We are Ukrainians. One thing that is making a difference further along this front line are the U.S.-supplied and controversial cluster munitions. Critics worry about a weapon that releases dozens of smaller bombs which sometimes fail to explode posing a deadly threat to civilians as they linger in fields long after a conflict ends. But Commander Musikant of the brigade's artillery unit says they give them a crucial advantage in the absence of air power because they can strike a large area using only one shell. So they can clear an area very quickly. Very quickly. <laughs> He directs a strike from their control room. Russian positions are in the firing line. One cluster, one shot is the order. Understood, replies the gunner in the field. The hit is successful. But the moral dilemma of using a weapon banned in most countries is not up for debate here. These men believe those cluster bombs are crucial in helping them hold the line for now. The Ukrainian soldiers we spoke to say so far the dud rate on these American cluster bombs is very low, claiming they've been almost 100% efficient. In Australia, a stomach-turning incident where surgeons removed a worm from a woman's brain. It seems there are new things to worry about if you're out there foraging for native plants to eat in some places. I thought, gosh, that feels funny. Neurosurgeon Harry Priya Bandy wasn't expecting what she found living inside a patient's brain. And I thought, gosh, what is that? It's moving. Take it out of my hands. That biopsy surprise in an operating room in Australia's capital city turned out to be a parasitic roundworm about three inches long. It's usually found in pythons. Something this large, eight centimetres and wriggling around and something that had never before been seen in a human being was certainly something uh, we'll, we'll never forget. The worm's 64-year-old unwitting host had been suffering with a mystery illness, experiencing stomach pain 
pains, fever, forgetfulness and depression before finally going under the knife last year. She was really pleased to have an answer. For many months she'd been really struggling and it was really courageous of her to come and have further testing after not having answers for so very long. Doctors documented the findings in a study out now in the CDC's Emerging Infectious Diseases Journal. The patient lives near a lake area that's home to carpet pythons and forages for native plants to cook. Doctors suspect she inadvertently consumed the parasitic eggs directly from the vegetation or indirectly with contaminated hands or kitchen equipment. We have noted, however, that other snakes around the world carry this parasite. So it is quite likely that other new cases will be documented. Doctors hope raising the profile of this lowly creature will help other healthcare workers around the world. Tina Krause, CBS News, London. There are all kinds of fancy bars out there these days, including a Florida pool in D.C. that's full of frozen drinks or an oxygen bar where one can get O2 treatments complete with aromatherapy, including lime or rosemary. But CBS's Stacey Lynn tells us about a place in Dubai that's gone a step beyond. Bartenders are shaking up drinks and muddling fruit into glasses. But there's no booze here. The base of all the cocktails is water. We are the first ever gourmet water bar that I know of. Roya Jabari is the manager of the Aqua Bar. We have 30 different recipes that come out of one system. She says it's a special filtration system that injects minerals that are good for you into the liquid. Here you can microdose the minerals to give you your own special taste. The bar's mission is to promote sustainability through encouraging people to use water filters and reusable bottles instead of single-use plastic bottles. Stacey Lynn, CBS News. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, has there been progress in the 60 years since the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom? That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, where every week we discuss issues including race. Sixty years ago this week, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The Racial Justice Nonprofit Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law was founded that same summer and co-chaired this year's march. Many, including Martin Luther King III, described the anniversary gathering as a continuation of Dr. King's dream of justice and equality. But is that battle moving backward? We asked Damon Hewitt, executive director and president of the Lawyers Committee. It's very nuanced, but in the way of speaking, I, I do agree in the following sense. Uh, Back in 1963, when the march happened and when the Lawyers Committee have, uh, was created, we didn't have, uh, you know, anywhere near the infrastructure we have today, the number of organizations for advocacy and, and, and legal and justice. We didn't have the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, uh, the Fair Housing Act that came a few years later. But what the folks did have was a sense of moral clarity and a vision. What folks did have was a sense of forward momentum of knowing who was willing to put what on the line in the cause of justice and freedom. Uh, we had freedom songs. We who believe in freedom will not rest. Uh, as Reverend C.T. Vivian said, the Bull Connor, we are willing to be beaten for democracy. Now, we still have a lot of freedom fighters today and have organizations like ours that do advocacy and, and, and litigation. But I do think collectively, Many folks are shell-shocked, many Black people in particular are shell-shocked by 
the degree of open uh, hostility towards us by the degree of uh, violence, the prevalence of racialized violence in this country, it feels like a step backward. But I do think the thing we have to remember is that progress is not linear. Uh, as critical race theorists tell us, theorists tell us uh, every period of reform is often going to be followed by a period of retrenchment. And if you look back in history, we have seen that. I think that what we're experiencing today is perhaps in some ways a response to the Obama presidency. I guess that's what the Trump administration and in years were. But it's also a response, a violent uh, weaponized response to the greatest fear that the other side has, which is a multiracial, intergenerational, multi-faith masses of people moving with moral clarity. That's what we came to at its peak at the March on Washington. That's what we saw in the streets in 2020 and 2021. And I think the response we're seeing, whether it be banning books and curriculum or even the violence and the white supremacist ideology, is all in response to that sense of aggrievement and fear uh, that's really akin to this great white replacement theory, uh, this false theory that there's genocide against white people. Uh, And so it is quite pernicious, quite dangerous. But what it leads to is a sense that we're under attack like we haven't been before in modern times. I'm going to come back to education in a second, but I'm curious. I saw a recent Pew survey, I think, that suggested that some 58% of whites think that there's been a great deal or a fair amount of progress against racism since then, but only 30% of blacks think so. But there also have been some positive signs, right? So so talk to me a bit about where things are better, and then we'll go back to what needs to be done now. Sure. I mean, I do think that, you know, things are better in terms of to some degree, in terms of political voice. So the Voter Rights Act of 65 marked a sea change. We saw record numbers of Black people registering, record numbers of Black people uh, actually uh, turning out to vote, being able to participate, and also record numbers of Black elected officials, uh, which is a sign that Black communities were electing their candidates of choice. So there's a lot of progress there. The Congressional Black Caucus is its largest ever, and a number of those members of the caucus uh, nationwide, they don't only represent majority of black districts. You know, I think the chair, Steve Horsford, I don't think his district in uh, Nevada, Las Vegas, is a majority black district. Um, and so, if I'm not mistaken, and so you're seeing uh, black people in leadership positions, what what have you. But we're also seeing these killings by police uh, at the same time. We're also seeing uh, very few uh, black Fortune 500 uh, CEOs. So it's it's a story of it's kind of a mixed bag, I'd see. But other points of progress, I guess, to, to your question, I, I guess I could say we could uh, we could point to is that we do have more black and brown students attending college than ever before. Um, counterpoint to that is that we're increasingly going to non-selective institutions, including for-profit colleges that take our money and leave us with little in the way of uh, the ability to to earn a living and, and, and have a career. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag, uh, but no one, you know, progress has never been linear, put it that way. You started out talking about voting rights, and I know your organization has been speaking out against some of the laws that advocates are saying, okay, I mean, like the voter suppression in Georgia, the 
uh, not counting absentee ballots, if there's an error in the birth date, how much of that is there going on in the country? Because it seems to me like a lot of states are rolling back some things that made it easier for people of color to vote. That's right. Um, they're hurt, they're hurting all people in the process. You know, in, in Texas, uh, we sued to challenge voter restrictions there, and we actually sued under state law. Our theory of the case being that Texas is at war with its own people, and it's making it harder for all of its people to vote, uh, but doing so in precise ways that are calculated to hurt uh, black voter engagement, registration, uh, turnout, especially through uh, mail ballots. And what makes it so pernicious, of course, in places like Texas and Georgia, we know that in the black community, most people pre-pandemic prefer to vote in person, either on election day or during early voting. Uh, that's how it's been for, for decades. Uh, but as soon as black people started using mail ballots, all of a sudden uh, there is there are challenges to mail ballots and these signature match requirements and restrictions even of early voting and when mail ballots can be sent in. Uh, so th- there, there certainly are lots of lots of rollbacks, and they came, Allison, almost all of a sudden in a wave, as if there was some eureka moment of uh, some danger point uh, for democracy uh, uh, posed by pe- more people being able to vote by these means. And we know that it's the false fraud squad. It's people like Chris Kobach and these others who, you know, tried and failed to prove fraud. In fact, the most fraud that's been determined has actually been by white voters uh, and often coordinated with the particular party um, in in, in various states around the country. Uh, We're not seeing communities of color engage in any kind of uh, orchestrated widespread fraud. Uh, We see entrapment of formerly incarcerated people in Florida who are led to believe that their voter rights have been restored only to find out that they hadn't been and then told they'll be placed under arrest. Uh, so th- this is this is really an effort to hold on to power and, ho- and holding on to power by quashing the voices and votes of a particular people. I'm curious as to what your organization has been doing or saying about the recent Supreme Court ruling basically banning affirmative action in college admissions. I mean, that seems by the lights of many advocates and students in general, that that, again, is putting people of color back decades. That's right. We actually have a lot to say and have said a lot because we argued that case in the Supreme Court uh, representing black and brown students at UNC Chapel Hill as defendant interveners in the case. So we worked the trial and put on evidence and witnesses at the trial. And we also uh, argued the case in the Supreme Court as well. And so what we've been saying is the court did not overrule precedent technically, at least that's what they tell us. They essentially underruled the precedent. They took existing law and twisted it into knots uh, to suggest, well, the same legal standard applies, but the way that UNC and Harvard and many other schools are uh, applying existing law is unconstitutional, which just leaves one scratching their head and wondering, what is it that you are to do? And so what we've been saying to higher education leaders, what we've been saying to K-12 leaders to the extent that there's fears of spread there, and even the business leaders as well, uh, is that this is not a time for retreat uh, or for retrenchment. Um, you know, our community is under attack like never before, so please do not abandon us now. 
and also guard against what we call interpretive overreach, uh, basically taking the decision out of context, such that one may think it means we must stop all diversity programming or we must stop any targeted uh, recruitment or scholarships. That's simply not necessarily the case. Those are all governed by different bodies of law. Um, and there already are attacks on those types of programs, too. But this is not the time to simply fold because the other side is emboldened. Let me just ask you one more. What do you think is the biggest issue that was brought up in 1963 that people need to be dealing with now? I feel like I don't hear a lot of conversation about jobs, but I also know that people stood on the stage this past weekend and talked about LGBTQ rights. They talked about anti-Semitism. What, what for you is the thing that people need to be focused on? Well, I would say it's hard to say one single issue, uh, but if, if I had to pick one, I would say uh, voting rights is it. I mean, without a vote and a voice, it's difficult to have or exercise or leverage in your real power. I look at it as a means of not just, it's not about power over others, it's really about self-determination. Um, if you cannot elect the candidates that you want to see, if you cast a vote and are not sure if that vote will even count, um, then you're essentially a, a voiceless people. And so I think that, as the late John Lewis said, uh, voting is a sacred, almost uh, a precious, almost sacred right. Uh, and so it is the gateway to all other forms of expression and opportunity and, of course, power. So it continues to be the reason uh, why voting rights is under, under attack because of the fear of building power. And that's exactly why we must continue to defend it and try to expand the right to vote. You know what? I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you're thinking about the climate of the nation as, as we go into the 2024 elections. It seems very divided. What, what, what are you feeling? What are you hearing from what are you hearing from your supporters and your members? Well, look, we, we do believe that people feel that tension, that sense of division in, in the nation. Um, there were times after George Floyd was murdered and there was such an outcry that we felt that maybe this is the galvanizing incident uh, that brings people together. Maybe the pandemic is a thing that brings people together. But human nature, at least in this country, keeps driving people apart. The one thing I do believe and, and, and I hope is that whatever we call the younger generations in this country, uh, not just millennials, of course, who are el older elders now in some cases, but <laughs> uh, gener Generation Z even, that we are hearing and seeing from people in that generation a greater openness. They don't have the emotional baggage. Uh, and they also, for you know, we believe haven't been as indoctrinated uh, with, you know, racism and hate as people in other versions, uh, other generations rather, have been who've had to unlearn it. Uh, and so I do have hope that not just with the passage of time, but with significant shifts in culture and consciousness uh, that we, we can move forward in a better direction in this country. Uh, and the sooner those younger people are of voting age and are able to vote, the sooner we'll start to see laws, policies, judges, elected and appointed officials that reflect values that are closer to the civil rights movement than we have today. That's Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law President and Executive Director Damon Hewitt. Coming up, a sketchy search for a monster. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keys. Two stars with big hearts, Oprah Winfrey and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, have launched a huge effort to help those who lost everything in the Maui wildfires. On Instagram Thursday, they announced the People's Fund of Maui to put money directly into the hands of those affected by the catastrophe. They say 100% of the funds will go to the people of Lahaina and Kula, and every adult resident is eligible to receive $1,200 a month. The greatest sense of empowerment is being able to have some control when everything seems so out of control and we're calling it the People's Fund of Maui because every dollar that you send is going to go into an account that goes directly to the people. Just knowing everything that took place, knowing the trauma that has taken place and knowing that it's going to take a long time to rebuild, probably get a little worse before it gets a little better, but we're here doing what we could do. The pair donated $10 million to get the fund started. Thursday marked International Overdose Awareness Day, and a Virginia Recovery Foundation put up its annual exhibit to remember those who have died while employees show others they can beat their addiction. Brian Yancey. With the reading of their name. Colleen, always in our hearts. And the swing of her hammer. David Red. Barbie Hunt builds a field of crosses row upon row outside the McShin Foundation in Henrico County. Every time I set up, it's like, it, I feel so grateful that my name's not on there. The display, an annual tribute for International Overdose Awareness Day. It makes me proud, yeah, that people have a, a place to come to celebrate the lives of those they've lost to addiction. And she says to serve as a reminder to those at McShin, a recovery foundation. They always say jails, institutions, and death, and this is the last, this is the last step right here. For Hunt, she's two years into recovery after 40 of use and has dozens of names she could add. I'm from Ohio, so I have no friends left. They're, they're all gone. But I'm here, God's got a purpose for me. That purpose helping others by showing it can be done. Life is so good today. I mean, it's everybody's worthy of a good life. And the, the longer you stay clean, the better life gets. Looking statewide since 2013, fatal drug overdoses has been the leading unnatural cause of death. And after a drop in 2022, officials predict a slight increase this year from 2,619 to 2,657. McShin CEO Honesty Liller says it's indicative of the strength of drugs now, especially fentanyl, which played a part in over 75% of all deaths last year. 
it's not just about being dope sick or using every single day. It's this, these drugs that are out there now, you literally die and it's hard to come back from. The international theme this year is recognizing people who go unseen, like the loved ones left behind, medical workers, or regular people who become spontaneous first responders to an overdose. Because as Hunt says, it will take everyone to win this fight. It's definitely a we program and we can't do it alone. WTVR-TV reporter Cameron Thompson. In California, a real-life merman who dives to find valuable things people have lost in the water and at the same time helps to clean up the lakes and rivers he searches. Welcome to the treasure room. If one man's trash is considered another man's treasure. So this is basically where I bring anything and everything I don't deem as trash. Then Michael Pelly is a rich man. I tell people that I'm a diver first and a treasure hunter. The diver explores the bottoms of rivers and lakes. Found a little thing of Crown Royal. Sifting through trash to find valuables people left behind. It started out with me just going out there and looking for anything and everything. A fascination that has turned into purpose. I also wanted to be able to return something if I did find it and I could return it. That's her. <laughs> Thank you. And so I realized, one, I was going to have to have some way to get my name out there. He decided on the name Merman Mike, and he now takes thousands of social media followers on his dive missions. Stay tuned. Recently, he was asked to search for a woman's wedding ring that slipped off her finger while she was at Bass Lake near Yosemite National Park. It was his deepest dive yet. I found a couple of uh, cans, I found bottle tops, I found pull tabs, I found pretty much anything and everything besides the ring. After nearly three hours of digging, you can see me looking at it for a second before I realized what it was. And then I just absolutely blew up with excitement. It's always the moment I'm looking for the most, especially if there's doubts. Merman Mike says he doesn't charge to find items. I tell everybody that I'm just happy to help. Anytime my head goes underwater, I'm a happy camper. And for him, moments like these <laughs> are priceless. Thank you. Donya is CBS right, News, Los Angeles. Oh, I'm so happy. Finally, a different kind of search for arguably Scotland's most famous resident. But even today's technology failed to prove the existence of a fantastic beast. CBS's Ian Lee joins some eager fans. There's a mystery lurking in the north of Scotland. In this land of mountains, mist, and music, the legend of the Loch Ness Monster looms large. Do you want to believe? Uh, yes, definitely, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm here. I mean, I wouldn't have trekked out in this weather to, <laughs> to see nothing. Caroline McNamara from New Jersey joined hundreds of volunteers in the largest search in 50 years. Unfortunately, we didn't see much today because of the weather. The legend of the monster dates back to the 6th century and an alleged encounter by an Irish monk. But it really took off in 1933 with a sighting of a whale-like creature. This latest search used state-of-the-art technology. We've got drones going up tonight, so they'll be using thermal imaging cameras. And underwater devices listen to what's lingering in the deep. We've started to detect noises which we haven't heard before, uh, and we can't answer them. The secrets of these waters have attracted scientists, monster hunters, and of course, millions of tourists. Shruti Priya traveled from North Carolina to try her luck. 
Everybody's here seeing Nessie and I was, I can't drive by without seeing Nessie. Is this kind of a bucket list thing? Yes, 100%. And the Gaelic gift shops make sure monster hunters don't go home empty-handed. What would Loch Ness be then without Nessie? It would just be a very, very beautiful part of the country. We don't have anything that is caught the world's imagination like the Loch Ness Monster. But with no definitive proof discovered, imaginations can continue to run wild. Ian Lee, CBS News, Loch Ness, Scotland. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. The Weekend Roundup is produced at the CBS News Washington Bureau. Sarah Fishman is the technical supervisor and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert, and I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you, like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show, How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen to Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more, Wondery means business.